hello there. Welcome to the show. You might want to pull up a chair. What I'm going to be trying to do is break this into segments so there'll be breaks in between because I've got a lot of data today to cover. Um, I'm trying to wrap up what was going on with the insane asylums um, with more detail. Nothing graphic. I'll leave you words for you to look for yourself. And also there's some connections with the Romans and the Ottoman Empire and all that stuff over there. And maybe an issue to look at later. So I think that will be how the segments will go first. And um, what I'll be also talking about will be how they did some of the early trickery to make people calm down. What they do is things get exposed, then people rile up, and then people then do reports and stuff and say, oh, we fixed all these things. Look, this guy from Stanford did this report. So what it does is it effectively puts people back to sleep because there seems to be this thing going on that people will perk up their ears over certain things and then they set up this scenario so that everybody can feel like, wow, I'm glad that's been taken care of and nod back off to sleep. And that's been a pretty um, consistent thing they're doing here. So I'll also be looking, I'm starting to look into the Habsburg. Those Habsburgs with that chin are back again. I'm very interested right now in Spain, Italy, Italy, excuse me, and um, Spain, Italy, and Germany, those three countries. They all seem to be kind of mulling together here. So let me get started here. I will start off with this big hodgepodge file of different things you might find interesting that I found real interesting. And we'll get going. But first, I hope you noticed in the last show about Montana, about just how those banks happened to show up in Montana. See, they lured them there with a the promise of great fortunes. They got them there. And they would have had to had admitted that things weren't working out. So what people would generally do then would be to go borrow money and stuff to keep that fake dream going, which is another form of debt slavery. And I've done a lot of talks about that, so I'm not going to get into that. But anyways, there's some interesting things. Um, I was looking into, remember I've been talking about the Romanesque and the Gothic, right? Well, looky here. This is just an Assad. It's kind of where I'm going right. When I finish this show, I'll be looking further into it. But I saw a thing show up and it talked about the Romans and they called them early psychopaths. And I thought, well, wait a minute here. Romans? Romanis? <laughs> so I poked around a little bit. And I'll tell you where I'm going and then I'll get back to this other institution stuff. Okay. During the time of Emperor Trajan, the Romans conquered and occupied Dracia at the end of two wars. And they talked these wars in ADs and all that stuff, right? The Romans colonized partially the territory of future Romania, and the Roman army was stationed there until the 3rd century AD. So, yeah, I, I don't know. Um, I think that... Um, Oh, geez, I got this interjected in here. Well, let me read this law so I don't have to start wandering around. In 1869, the Illinois legislature passed a law requiring a trial before a person could be committed. And that law remained in effect for 25 years. I think what happened then was they just took that law away because they figured out it was quicker to get the doctors to do it. Okay, so back to the Romans here. 
So I started looking around a little bit into any connections between Romans, Romanians. <laughs> they said, and I don't say, I'm not saying this is all true, right? But this is how they wrote the lie. <clears throat> Excuse me. The conquering of Dacia by the Roman Empire resulted in a process of ro Romanizing the locals. By pouring the Roman civilization into every aspect of life, administration, army, religion, education, law, and most importantly, language. Regardless of the length of the stay of Romans, they didn't, they supposedly only passed through Romania for a few years, but that's not the point right here. Their influence and impact remain and is still very visible now, almost 2,000 years later. Surprise, surprise. Anyway, so um, in all the countries of the world, there are buildings in what is usually called classical style. We call this style Greek or Roman. And later we call it neoclassical. That's what I was talking about. They have the original stuff from hundreds of years ago, and then now they're talking about this new stuff is new, right? I'll be getting to the castles and stuff next, but how they psychologically got us was certainly more on my mind first. So, okay. Um, so I flicked up too far. Um, they are found on all continents, these neoclassical designs, and it is not because the Romans have been there even though they reach far and wide. It is only in Roman culture that all their possessions, all their inventions, all their techniques, their language, and their riches were stolen from others. <laughs> Sounds like our people, right? Everything gets stolen. Possibly their only origin contribution contribution to civilization is their special ways of equipping and setting up an army intended to destroy civilization. So yeah, something else, right? And these Tartaria people, whether there was a Roman Empire at all, and claims that it was all part of this worldwide great empire called Tartaria, whose infrastructure was immeasurable. So yeah, the Romans, Romanesque. What was the religious in ancient Rome? The indigenous Italic religion, which was the nuclear of the religion of ancient Rome, was essentially animistic. And I'll give you that definition in a minute here. It depended on the belief that focuses that forces or spirits called numina existed in natural objects and controlled human destiny. Kind of a little bit of early magic sounds to me, but anyway, I got a lot more to do on that magic deal because there's there are two kinds of magic. People tend to be talking about magic as far as the hex magic, but actually the magic they're using is different. So what does anodism mean? It is the att attribution of a soul to plants, innate objects, and natural phenomena the belief in a supernatural power that organizes and animates the material universe. And the quote was, a village steeped in ancient animism and rituals. And territory consisted of what are the regions of, it's called Ultidia, Tran 
<coughs> excuse me here, Transylvania and Banat today are all in Romania. And so there's one that splits between Romania and Hungary and Serbia. During Roman rule, it was organized as an imperial province on the borders of the empire. Now, I'm very um, still foggy on Romania and Hungary. I kind of right now think they're both the same, but it's a little bit too foggy to get into. So um, just because the people from Romania, I, I think I think what pro may have happened is that the Romanians got all this started. They immigrated they probably went to Spain, Germany, and Italy were their main headquarters. And I think they probably ditched people back in Romania because they always ditch everybody, right? Because the famous people living in Romania aren't people you'd ever hear about, right? Um, and I also found an interesting connection with the um, all the fires and explosives they do, but I'll get to that later. So, um, yeah, um, there was a quote these mental institutions got exposed by the press at different junctures. And that was part of what I just explained as far as um, act like they're waking up to these things and then act like, oh, it's all been taken care of. Look away. Well, that is effectively from my view of how this went on for so long. But I'll get to this report from this guy from Stanford in a minute here. I'm going to tell you a few of the things they did during these asylums. Okay. And I am not going to go into great detail. I will give you the words and you're more than welcome to look for yourself. Okay. First thing in these asylums, they were using insulin shock therapy or insulin coma therapy. It was a form of psychiatric treatments in which patients were repeatedly injected with large doses of insulin in order to produce daily comas over several weeks. It was introduced in 1927 by Austrian-American psychiatrist Manfred Sackel, S-A-K-E-L, and used extensively in the 1940s and 1950s, mainly for schizophrenia, before falling out of favor and being replaced by neuropoleptic drugs in the 1960s. <clears throat> those neuropoleptic drugs, I'll get into those later, but those are the drugs that became pills and kind of essentially shut these places down. Another form that was used in the early institutions was the lobotomy. I'm not going to give the whole history of it. I think the first lobotomy may have happened in, um, um, geez, my mind this morning, Appalachia. But then there was only one. Anyway, I, that's where I think it happened. But, you know, remember, they're they're rewriting all these stories as they go along. So um, a lobotomy or a leucotomy, L-E-U-C-O-T-O-M-Y, was a form of psychosurgery, a neurosurgical treatment of a mental disorder that involves severing connections in the brain's prefrontal cortex. Okay, I'm not going to get <clears throat> graphic here. Let me skip over that part. Um, you don't need to know all the... <clears throat> if you want to look, just type in lobotomy and wiki, okay? Um, the originator of the procedure was a Portuguese neurologist. And he shared the Nobel Peace Prize for Physiology and Medicine in 1949 for the discovery of the therapeutic value of leucotomy in certain psychosis. 
although the awarding of the prize has been subject to controversy. Yeah, if I, if I don't get back to it, the guy who um, invented explosives was the guy who started the Nobel. <laughs> Some other guy before the Nobel Peace guy started the explosive deal, but he perfected it and put it on the world map. They love those fires and explosives, don't they? Okay. The use of the procedure increased dramatically from the early 1940s and into the 50s. By 1951, almost 20,000 lobotomies had been performed in the United States and proportionally more in the United Kingdom. More lobotomies were performed on women than on men. A 1951 study found that nearly 60% of American lobotomy patients were women. And limited data shows that 74% of lobotomies in Ontario, Canada from 1948 to 1952 were also performed on female patients. What's happening now is people who were studying to be doctors and stuff, they're now going back and looking at some of this historical data doesn't mean they're going to change it right they're just taking a look at it so they have been compiling data but I really wouldn't put much hope into these numbers but what it does tell us that obviously females were more targeted than men another procedure called ECT electroconvulsive therapy that was a psychiatric treatment where a generalized seizure is electrically induced to manage refractory mm -hmm. mental disorders and I'm not going to get into all the um, things about it, but it's still going on right now. Um, and it's also, um, just just type in ECT Wiki and you can get all of the lurid details of um, the amnesia it causes and all that kind of stuff. I don't believe it's safe, but, um, you know, what do I know, right? Um, I'll tell you what they say about how safe they think it is. Um, Considerable controversy exists over the effects of ECT on brain tissue, although a number of mental health associations, including the APA, which is the American Psychiatric Association, have concluded that there is no evidence that ECT causes structural brain damage. Boy, that's really good to know, isn't it? A 1999 report by the U.S. Surgeon General states, the fears that ECT causes gross structural brain pathology have not been supported by decades of methodically sound research in both humans and animals. Well, boy, they made their statement, right? They offered me ECT. Um, and they said, I was only other interested in is the um, effects on pregnancy and our hearts, because they seem to be after our hearts and our blood. If steps are taken to decrease potential risk, ECT is generally accepted to be relatively safe during all trimesters of pregnancy, particularly when compared to phar pharmaceutical treatment. See, these really raise a lot of false equivalencies, right? You, they're acting like, well, you got to have the pills, right? So if you can't have the pills, let's zap your brain. It's, it's, a, it's a straw man argument, um, but it works. So credit to them, right? Um, so suggested preparations for ECT during pregnancy includes a pelvic exam, discontinuation of non-essential anti... I don't know what these medications are. Why is a pregnant woman taking this medication? Uterine. Well, anyways, they say that 
they have a section there about the pregnant women, but I, I don't believe a word of it, so there's no reason to linger on here. Um, so, um, yeah, so uh, another interesting thing that I was looking into, what they are finding in some of these old institutions are suitcases. I mentioned them just in passing earlier. Um, people went in with little night bags thinking they were going to be there for a few days, and they never left. And there is a piece that I found about the suitcases I found interesting. There was a psychiatric center that closed in 1995. Geez, that was, oh. Anyways, workers discovered hundreds of suitcases in the attic of an abandoned building. Many of them appeared untouched since their owners packed them decades earlier before entering the institution. These suitcases and their contents bear witness to the rich complex lives of owners excuse me the rich complex lives their owners lived prior to being committed they speak about aspirations accomplishments community connections but also about loss and isolation from the clothing and personal objects left behind we can gain some understanding of who these people were before they disappeared behind hospital walls. We can picture their jobs and careers, see them driving cars, playing sports, studying writing, and traveling the world. We can imagine their families and friends, but we can also see their lives coming apart due to unemployment, the death of a loved one, loneliness, poverty, and some other catastrophic events. The suitcases and the life stories of the people who own them raise questions that are difficult to confront. Why were these people committed to this institution? And why did so many stay for so long? How were they treated? What was it like to spend years in a mental institution, shut away from society that wanted to distance itself from people it considered insane? Why did most of these suitcases owners live out their days at this asylum? What about their friends and families? And the circumstance, are the circumstances today any better than they were for these psychiatric patients? I would say that situations are no better. They just look nicer, right? People are now completely separated from their families thanks to texting, the internet, and the social media thing. So yeah, it took isolating people from other people. It took a lot of people not speaking up about those people, right? How do you think we got here? Everybody effectively looked the other way. So um, this was an interesting quote from 1989 I had been looking at. There was a small piece in the State Chronicle in North Carolina about the sickening abuse of some patients of a Dr. Grissom. Although certain political heads were trying to convince people that the necessary thing to do was to make an insane person... Okay, let me start again. The necessary thing to do to make an insane person act rational is to chain him throw water in the face, or kick and stamp him in the face. Other people were crying out about the injustice and inhumane treatment. So things started, you know, I think these places mainly started about 1860s or so. And um, people were starting to 
they were publishing things in the newspaper then probably to silence the people who were saying that it was bad. But we don't know. By 1921, there was a debate among politicians and doctors for the insane over whether it whether or not it'd be better to put the incurably insane out of their misery. And this I found in a report in the Connecticut, this bulletin they had in 1921. Discussion of the matter was started anew last Saturday by the members of a General Assembly's Committee on Appropriations, the members being divided as to whether or not a law should be passed providing that persons in state institutions found to be hopelessly insane and suffering mental tortures should be mercifully put to death. So, um, I think that, um, there's a lot here and starting in, they started reporting this stuff. There was an association handbook of this psychological associate, the earliest one I found. Um, also back then nurses in these hospitals were not like the other nurses. So, um, this one psychological association introduced the certificate in attendance and nursing upon insane persons in 1891, meaning they would get a certificate <clears throat> saying that they were capable to take care of insane people. Marking a shift toward asylum nursing as a better regulated occupation. Well, <clears throat> not really. But anyways, I think they just, the nursing thing, they just put on white uniforms. <laughs> so I'm not sure. I don't get the idea things improve, but you have to make up your own mind. The Association's Handbook of 1886 also noted the need for attendees to report to doctors any evidence of pain, bruising, or fracture, as well as detecting injuries that may need treatment. Physical exam was reviewed as an important defense for the asylum. So they were getting reports of people having injuries, and I won't get into any more of that. And um, so they came up with this thing to come up with some guidelines. Well, I think it was just, you know, one of those public relations moves, right? Um, so anyways, it's interesting because the first president, James Garfield, oh, he was a president of this country, supposedly. Uh, next, by the way, I'll be talking about the early photography and um, why there's no pictures of some early U.S. presidents. Um, anyway, so they wanted to, um, this Kirk Brown thing, I've talked about this before, but it needs to kind of tie into here a little tiny bit. Um, they wanted to make it look like it was a fancy building. And um, so they said that, um, let me see here. At first, patients were s served well. I don't know about that. And there were close relationships between them and the hospital staff. But conditions and treatments worsened as these asylums became flooded with patients, many of who wouldn't be considered mentally ill by today's medical standards. Yeah, um, these facilities were built for like maybe oh, 500 people and they pushed in like thousands of people, right? So the overcrowding, and some of them actually had the nerve to say that the overcrowding proved to their great success. There's lots of ways to spend a lie, isn't there? Um, anyway, so yeah, they then they 
they became a point of tourism. I kind of mentioned that, but I want to explain a little bit more. They came by the thousands from all over the world to picnic in the pristine gardens and admire the architecture, to marvel at the wonders of modern science and technology, and to learn about their fellow humans. I know that this took place, but I'm still thinking about all those buildings, okay? Because here's the deal. How did they build these big brick and cement buildings in the mid-1800s that had very little road access? They were isolated. Probably a case of they had some equipment that nobody in that era knew about is the only logical conclusion I could come to. Because... Logistically, it just would not be possible. So, because they're who they are, there's also another possibility that these buildings were looked to be palaces on the outside in this dual world, horror, a horror show on the inside could be another possibility. Because while these, while these insane asylums have a lot of things going on for them, as far as the palatial effect, the... Uh, primarily gothic design well when you look on the inside it kind of tells a different story well they all had high ceilings but were high ceilings just a thing of that day because high ceilings i i don't know, smoke smoke was easier to manage in high ceilings um they used wrought iron railings which seemed a little bit too designed for the place they also um used um in the tile work the tiles weren't all put on straight. In other words, it's kind of sloppy work on the inside, even though they use some marble and stuff in the entryway. So I'm still kind of perplexed by those buildings. That's what I'm getting to here. I'm not done with those buildings. Not by a million years. Okay, so the rise of asylum tourism followed on the heels of a new treatment paradigm in which insanity was increasingly viewed as a draining of one's energies that could be cured given the right environment and the requisite amount of rest and medication. So that would have been what people during the era would have been told to make this seem okay, right? Well, they seem a little bit crazy now, but I think a little bit of rest in this institution. See, see, that, that's how you got you got to lure them in the door. They couldn't take everybody kicking and screaming, right? <laughs> that would be way too complicated. You don't want to get your 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 future prisoners all angst up from the beginning. You want to make sure like it's a very calm process, right? So um, there was a woman who documented this in Chronicles of Prison Asylums and the Public. And um, the new asylums reflected this philosophy and they started to spring up across the U.S. and Canada actively courting tourists who were not simply voyeurs but earnest explorers with a moral purpose to their leisure. Strange how that became, it, I, I think the process also was to normalize locking certain elements of society up. Well, that group was locked up over there, but it won't happen to you. And that, that's kind of the thing right now. People are acting like it can't happen to them. So, and then there is a piece about the um, gravestones, which I was interested in. The gravestones were primarily just numbers, okay? No flowers or headstones mark the graves just deliberately arranged rows of trees and a sign 
that said such and such county asylum cemetery 1891 to 1943 and that's where my mom found that relative of ours at one of these cemeteries and you can look up some of these cemetery logs um so yeah one of one of the people that caught my attention they had a young boy who died of epilepsy of a seizure well he could have gotten that epilepsy through early hormone usage because epileptic seizures tend to happen from hormone use so, um, yeah, th there's lots of ways they're recovering this stuff. I'm still not convinced about what was going on inside the buildings. So there's a lot, there's a lot to keep thinking about here. And if you want to look at these buildings, they're not hard to look for. Just do a search for your own country. Um, somewhere in the graveyard, a farm worker whose family committed him for alcoholism in 1897 when he was 25 years old. He died at the asylum of a heart attack when he was 72 years old. Anonymous in life as well as death. In county records, he is listed as John Doe. Under the heading, they found, what relative, if any, should take charge of the body? John Doe's chart says none. Boy, lock him up and forget about it, right? Desolate lives and deaths were often the fate of people with mental illness, real or supposed. So, um, yeah, I don't think we need to say anymore. I think we get the picture there. Wasn't looking good. Let me get to this thing called the Rosenbaum experiment. I found this one really interesting. Um, it's it's it, To me, and you can make your own decision, to me, it looks like an early stage of how to look like they're doing these studies and <laughs> nothing ever gets done. If you haven't noticed the pattern with these people, then we'll look a little bit closer. Um, the Rosenbaum, bon, R-O-S-E-N-B-A-N experiment or THUD experiment was an experiment conducted to determine the validity of psychiatric diagnoses. The participants feigned hallucinations to enter psychiatric hospitals, but acted normally afterwards. They were diagnosed with psychiatric disorders and were given antipsychotic medication. So they did this several times through history. What they did was these authors or people would act like they snuck their way into a mental ward by acting like they were crazy to expose stuff. Well, <laughs> anyway, this study was conducted by psychologists David Rosenban, a Stanford University professor. And this was just recent. I'll get to the date in a minute here. It is considered an important and influential criticism of psychiatric diagnoses and broke the topic of wrongful, wrongful involuntary commitment. Rosenbaum's study was done in two parts. The first part involved the use of healthy associates or pseudo-patients three women and five men, including Rosenban himself, who briefly feigned auditory hallucinations in an attempt to gain admission to 12 psychiatric hospitals in five states in the United States. All were admitted and diagnosed with psychiatric disorders. After admission, the pseudo-patients acted normally and told staff they no longer experienced any additional hallucinations. As a condition of their release, all the patients were forced to admit having a mental illness and to agree to take antipsychotic medication. 
the average time that the patient spent in the hospital was 19 days. All but one were diagnosed with schizophrenia and schizophrenia in remission before their release. The second part of his study involved a hospital administration challenging Rosenthal to send pseudo-patients to his facility, whose staff asserted that they would be able to detect the pseudo-patients. Rosenthal agreed, and in the following weeks, 41 out of 193 new patients were identified as potential pseudo-patients with 19 of these receiving suspicion from at least one psychiatrist and one other staff member. Rosenthal sent no pseudo... I, I don't understand this for a second here, but um, I think that uh, they said a bunch of things. Rosenthal conceived, that, conceived of the experiment as a way to test the reliability of psychiatric diagnosis. The study concluded, it is clear that we cannot distinguish the sane from the insane in psychiatric hospitals. And it also illustrated the dangers of dehumanizing and labeling in psychiatric institutions. It suggested that the use of community mental health facilities, which concentrated on specific problems and behaviors, rather psychiatric labels might be a solution and recommended education to make psychiatric workers more aware of the social psychology of their facilities. That really didn't work out too well, did it? Rosenthal himself and seven mentally healthy associates called pseudocytes. Okay, um, this gets into more detail. Well, I'll explain to you. Um, they attempted to gain admission. This was another thing. The hospital staff were not informed of the experiment. The pseudoscience included a psycho psychology graduate student in his 20s, three psychologists, a pediatrician, a psychiatrist, a painter, and a housewife. None had a history of mental illness. Pseudopatients used pseudonames, and those who worked in the mental health field were given false jobs in a different sector to avoid invoking any special treatment or scrutiny. Apart from giving false names and employment details, further biographical details were truthfully reported. Well, I guess they only lied about the big points, right? During their initial psychiatric assessment, these pseudo-patients claimed to be hearing voices of the same sex as the patient, which were often unclear but which seemed to pronounce the words empty, hollow, or thud, and nothing else. These words were chosen as they vaguely suggest some sort of existential crisis or the lack of any published literature referencing them as psychotic, psychiatric symptoms. No other psychiatric symptoms were claimed. If admitted, these pseudo-patients were instructed to act normally reporting that they felt fine and no longer heard voices. Hospital records attained at the experiment indicate that all pseudo-patients were characterized as friendly and cooperative by staff. All were admitted to 12 psychiatric hospitals across the United States, including run-down and underfunded public hospitals in rural areas, urban university-run hospitals with excellent excellent reputation, and one expensive private hospital. 
Though presented with identical symptoms, seven were diagnosed with schizophrenia, seven out of 12, at public hospitals, and one with manic depressive psychosis. A more optimistic diagnosis with better clinical outcomes at the private out, the private hospital gave them a more optimistic, <laughs> optimistic view of their health. Their, stay, their stays ranged from seven to 52 days, and the average was at 19 days. All but one were discharged with a diagnosis of schizophrenia. Yeah, they, they really like that schizophrenia thing. Um, so, I don't know. They I, I think this whole Rosenbaum study was just to make people think that people were doing things. Um, you know, we can go on for a week about him, but he's just another, another one of the liars, right? I saw a guy from Stanford years ago. It wasn't that many years ago probably about, I don't know, in the last eight years, five years, whatever. Um, it was a Stanford psych child psychiatrist, and I it really took me a long time to really calculate what he was saying, because he was saying they were talking about bipolar children, and he was actually suggesting that to curb this um, mass amount of children they were identifying as being bipolar these days, that... Um, the solution would be to start all children on this medication. And I'm not joking about this stuff. I just see them. So anyway, so yeah, I think that this whole study was just to, uh, he published his findings in science in which he criticized the reliability of psychiatric diagnosis and the disempowering and demeaning nature of patient care experienced by the associates of the study. I told friends, I told my family, I can get out when I can get out. That's all. I'll be there for a couple of days and I'll get out. Nobody knew I'd be there for two months. The only way out was to point out that there, the psychiatrists are correct. In other words, you have to admit to them that you are crazy. That is what they also did to me too. They make you admit they tell you you're crazy, and then they want you to repeat it back to them. And that's when they bring your family in and get them to agree that you're crazy. So it's it's a pretty big, pretty big crazy, crazy process. It's a pretty big evil process, right? So, yeah, one guy criticized him, um, and many respondents to the publication defended psychiatry, arguing that as psychiatric diagnosis relies largely on the patient's report of their experiences, Faking their presence no more demonstrates problems with psychiatric diagnosis than lying about other medical symptoms. So, yeah, I don't know. Um, everybody has a view, right? There was this one guy that I found interesting. Columbia University psychiatrist Robert Spitzer was a fierce critic of Rosenbans. He recognized that the publicity storm created by Rosenbans' work could help him get traction for his efforts to improve the American Psychiatric Association. Their approach to diagnose, see how this all, oh, what a surprise. Rosenbaum comes up with this stuff. His buddy at Columbia University says, oh, wait a minute, we could use this to our advantage. So in 1974, Spitzer was tapped by the American Psychiatric Association to oversee a new edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders called the DSMV. DSMV. Look for, go do some searches for DSMV fraud, and I'll, you'll, you'll find how it started off as a small pamphlet, ended up in a 20 pound book. They have gone through methodically and defined all these things that are crazy about us, right? 
So um, he he oversaw a revamping. Um, so yeah, doctors were provided diagnostic criteria to tick off one by one. So yeah, they um, they use that to feed into that, right? Um, having once been labeled schizophrenic, there is nothing the pseudo patients can do to overcome the tag. It follows you forever. Trust me, it follows you forever, even to this very day. People know very little about you, and they come to a lot of conclusions based on the crazy factor, right? So they got it was a lot of a lot of controversy at that time. Getting ready to wrap this section up here. He, they argued that psychiatrists should not necessarily be expected to assume that a patient is pretending to have me mental illness. So yeah, I think that um, then there's been several people that have done these books, okay, and said that they're mainly authors, and they said that they acted like they were crazy and they got put into mental institutions, and that was the basis for a book that they wrote, right? The most the closest one to this Rosenban person in 19, 2019, it was a book called The Great Pretender, and an author um, questions the validity of the experiments and so what she 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 went through records that Rosenbaum had left after his death and um, she found it was inconsistent data misleading descriptions and inaccurate or fabricated quotations from psychiatric records mm -hmm. moreover despite an extensive search she is only able to identify two of the eight pseudo patients Rosenban himself it's Rosenhan, I keep calling it Bam, and a graduate student whose testimony is allegedly inconsistent. So yeah, they, they did some research that it probably wasn't true. Well, I would probably agree with that. It probably wasn't true, right? Um, in eight, oh, wait a minute. There was one, the, the oldest case I could find of this um, acting like you're crazy or not. In 1887, American investigative journalist Nellie Bly feigned a symptom of mental illness to gain admission to a lunatic asylum and report on the terrible conditions. Her book was 10 Days in a Madhouse. Well, <laughs> they give us information in ways that kind of sounds kind of official, doesn't it? Um, because people say, yeah, that journalist locked himself up. This has all got to be true. So part of the big trick, right? Then there was another one in 1968. Um, this this was an interesting one. This Maurice, why all these names? Maurice Timmerlin split 25 psychiatrists into two groups and had them listen to an actor portraying a, a character of normal mental health. One group was told that the actor was a very interesting man because he looked neurotic, but actually was quite psychotic. While the other was told nothing. 60% of the former group diagnosed psychosis most often schizophrenia, while none of the control group did so. I don't know. I think that, you know, <laughs> I, I don't really particularly believe any of these studies, so I'm not going to spend the next week on them. So anyway, so yeah, there are several books out like that. And that is the only reason I'm listing these books is because it shows the path of deception that took on here, right? So yeah, these things got really got crazy with these reports. And um, I think that's about it for this section. So anyway, so... Um, Oh, um, yeah, um, 
there was um, oh here was something about England and Wales I want to tell you about just this just the sheer number of these people right 1808 Parliament advised publicly funded systems for pauper lunatics that means poor lunatics and 20 were built from 1845 it became compulsory for countries to build asylums and a lunacy commission was set up to monitor them by the end of the century there were as many as 120 new asylums in England and Wales housing more than a hundred thousand people a lot of people right anyway the next segment will show up in a second here Okay, there I'm back. I want to clear up a few things in this show. I think we pretty much have wrapped up the insane asylum business for now, but I'm still concerned about those buildings, so that's pretty wide open. And looking for patterns, I have mentioned this Bundy person in the past and my suspicions about them being Ted. <laughs> There's a person in here named Cliven Bundy. And interestingly enough, remember when I was talking in Montana as far as the uh, grazing on government property? Well, <laughs> it happens all the time. In California, uh, the pot growers all grow pot on, not all of them, but on government, federal, forest property, wherever you call it. I just read his case, um, oh, I don't know, maybe two months ago about um, they discovered a huge pot growing operation on government property. Now, this was next to a pretty big city in California, okay? So how this entire operation got set up and then discovered is kind of a mystery, right? So yeah, they like these stories. Um, but first, let me start off with this um, explosive thing I mentioned. I, I don't remember if I mentioned it in the show about fires, but Look up fires in Wikipedia and you will find a massive, massive database of all the fires through all the centuries. And what's amazing is all the fires that were with brick buildings. <laughs> so, okay, who invented the first explosives? Well, funny you should ask. <clears throat> Excuse me, in 1846. Isn't it kind of interesting that I keep telling you numbers like 1846, 1860? Funny how this all seems to circle around these dates, doesn't it? Just very, very funny. Who invented the first explosives? In 1846, Italian chemist, Acasio Sobrero. He lived 1812 to 1888. He invented the first modern explosive, nitroglycerin. By treating nitroglycerin, excuse me, by treating glycerin with nit nitric and sulfuric acids, so Rero's discovery was, unfortunately for many early users, too unstable to, <laughs> too unstable to be used safely. <laughs> the Nobel Prize was established by none other than inventor Alfred Nobel. He lived from 1833 to 1896. But besides being the namesake behind one of the most prestigious awards given annually for academic, cultural, and scientific achievements, Nobel, or as Nobel or Nobel, whatever, is also well known for making it possible for people to blow things up. 
Before all that, however, the Swedish industrialist, engineer, and inventor built bridges and buildings in his national nation's capital, Stockholm. It was his construction work that inspired Noble to research new methods of blasting rock. So in 1860, Noble first started experimenting with an explosive chemical substance called nitroglycerin. So it was the nitroglycerin was first gone by that Italian dude Serrero, supposedly, and Nobel understood this. And in 1866, he discovered, or she, however you want to look at this, all of them were women, okay? Women really do, in fact, rule the world. <laughs> Hate to break it to you, men, but women are behind all this horror, all this evil, and they're running the world. Matter of fact, in case you don't know, how do you get to be a psychiatrist? Well, first you have to be a medical doctor. Then you get to be a psychiatrist. But I think it's like you get your MD first and then you study for, I don't know, three or four more years, you get to be a psychiatrist. To me, it's very interesting because medicine is supposedly all rigged around science, right? But psychiatry tends to be rigged by speculation. Like there are no tests for a lot of these mental disorders other than what the psychiatrist says they are. So. Anyway, so in um, 1866, he discovered that mixing nitroglycerin with silica would turn the liquid into a malleable paste called dynamite. One advantage that dynamite had over nitroglycerin was that it could be cylinder-shaped for insertion into the drilling holes used for mining. So... In 1860, well, that was 1866, um, the detonator used a strong shock rather than heat combustion to ignite the explosives. The Noble Company built the first factory to manufacture nitroglycerin and dynamite. Imagine that, huh? Imagine that. Funny how they invented all these things, isn't it? I'm surprised they didn't invent fire <laughs> in the 1800s, but they needed the fire before because fire was what they were claiming that they were destroying buildings with fire and fake earthquakes, right? So in 1867, Nobel received a U.S. patent for his invention of dynamite. To be able to detonate the dynamite rods, Nobel also improved his detonator, the blasting cap, so that it could be ignited by lighting a fuse. Boy, that's handy, right? Set up that dynamite everywhere. In 1875, Nobel invented blasting gelatin, that was more stable and powerful than dynamite, and he patented that in 1876. In 1887, he was granted a French patent for balisti, a smokeless blasting powder made from nitrocellulose and nitroglycerin, while ballastite was developed as a substitute for black gunpowder. A variation is used today as a solid rocket fuel propellant. Yeah, I will get back to that um, oil stuff, these propellants, because um, there's a lot of odd things going on in this country with oil. <laughs> like a million odd things. Uh, like this country, we use like 30% more petroleum products. Well, we're slathering on oil onto our skin, okay? They call it mineral oil. But yeah, there's a lot with this oil business. So where did, where did Nobel come from? 
Well, he was born October 21st, 1833 in Stockholm, Sweden. Hello, Sweden. <laughs> we got your man here. Okay, so <clears throat> his family moved to St. Petersburg in Russia when he was nine years old. Nobel prized himself on the many countries he lived in during his lifetime and considered himself a world citizen. Well, well, well. And he founded the nitroglycerin place in Sweden in 1865. He built the Alfred, sorry about the dog barking, Alfred Noble and Company factory near Hamburg, Germany. In 1866, he established the United States Blasting Oil Company in the United States. Funny how that worked. Got it set up in Germany and just happened to come over here, right? In 1870, he established the Society General for the Fabrication of Dynamite in Paris. When he died in 1896... Nobel stipulated the year before in his last will and testament that 94% of his total assets should go toward the creation of an endowment fund to honor achievements in physical science, chemistry, medical science, or physiology, literary work, and service toward peace. Remember, Obama got the um, Nobel Peace Prize before he went on to blow up Yemen and the Middle East. Hence, the Nobel Peace Prize is awarded yearly to people whose work helps humanity. In total, Alfred Nobel held 355, hold on one second, <coughs> excuse me, he held, this guy was pretty busy, <laughs> he held 355 patents in the fields of electrochemistry, optics, biology, and physiology. <laughs> These people are pretty incredible, aren't they? They're always child protégés that learn how to <laughs> do all this stuff as children and always get the most rewards. And here's kind of an interesting one. I was talking about the land standoff. Remember I was talking about the story in Montana as far as the cattle um, stampeding that poor family's um, farm or homestead in Montana? Well, this is, they have a history of this stuff, okay? Um this person I've talked about just in passing named Bundy, okay? His name is Cliven Bundy. I'm sure it's Ted, okay? They were born the same year, it sounds like, but too much too much work to go into figuring it out. But anyway, so what this was, I've never explained what it was, and now that we're talking about cattle grazing around on public land, this has been going on forever, okay? See, they expect us to follow the rules, like those poor little homesteaders, but they basically do whatever they want. So there was a two... 2014, it was called the Bundy Standoff, okay? It was an armed confrontation between supporters of cattle rancher Cliven Bundy and law enforcement following a 21-year legal dispute in which the United States Bureau of Land Management, also known as BLM, obtained court orders directing Bundy to pay over $1 million in withheld grazing fees for Bundy's use of federally owned land adjacent to Bundy's Ranch in southeast Nevada. On March 27, 2014, 125,000 acres of federal land in Clark County were temporarily closed for the capture, impound, and removal of trespass cattle. BLM officials and law enforcement rangers began a roundup of such livestock on April 5th 
And then they arrested his son, Dave. He was arrested in April. Now, it gets a little bit fishy here, right? So, I think that if you were and I were raising cattle on federal property, I don't think there would be much of a discussion, right? But this went on for a very long time. So, yeah, uh, they negotiated with Bundy. See, see, we would have probably been blown off the property, but they, they negotiated for a very long time. I'll just do a quick refresher. The ongoing dispute started in 1993 when, in protest against changes in grazing rules, Bundy declined to renew his permit for cattle grazing on BLM-administered public lands near Bunkerville, Nevada. According to Bundy, the federal government lacks the constitutional authority to own vast tracts of lands an argument repeatedly rejected by federal courts. So Bundy was essentially saying that <laughs> the government doesn't really own that land, so I guess it was okay for him to use it. Um, according to the BLM, Bundy continued to graze his cattle on public lands without a permit. In 1998, Bundy was prohibited by the United States District Court for the District of Nevada from grazing his cattle on an open area of land called the Bunkerville Allotment. In July 2013, federal judge Lloyd George, probably uh, Betty George, all these judges are also women too. If there's one that I find that I don't find suspicious, I'll make sure and point it out to you, okay? You don't get to the top without being in the club gang. You just It just doesn't happen. They've saved the mutants and everything is for all the rest of us, but they, the ones at the top, yeah. If you don't believe me, go find me one that isn't, okay? Cliven and his son, Ammon Bundy, and their supporters have claimed that the federal government lacks the authority to manage public lands. These arguments have been repeatedly rejected. <laughs> Well, I don't know. It went on for a long time, and I'm kind of done with that. Let's get back to the Hasbergs, my favorite people with those damn chins. <laughs> Funny thing about the Habsburg Empire, right? Just hysterical, right? Came from Spain. Go look at the uh, flag that the Habsburg Empire flew, and then go look up the flag that they claim the Tartaria people flew. Funny how both of those flags are yellow backgrounds with that uh, dragon or whatever they seem to like, right? Yeah, almost identical flags. Now, there were a lot of flags during that time that look alike, but it seems a little bit suspect in my rabbit brain that the Habsburg Empire flag, just like this Tartaria flag, what a coincidence, right? And all these, all these castle stories, I'll get to the castles next, but all these castle stories have a lot of ambiguity in them, okay? The origins of Habsburg Castle's name are uncertain. There is disagreement on whether the name is derived from the High German, meaning Hawk Castle, or from the Middle Ground German word, meaning Hap, meaning Ford, as there is a river with a ford nearby. They used to name the castles by the region, and the people picked up the castle. But when I get to the castle story, this gets really, really squishy, okay? So, um, the Habsburg name was not continuously used by the family members since they often emphasized their more prestigious princely titles. Boy, does that sound familiar. The dynasty was thus long known as the House of Austria. 
complementary in some circumstances, the family members were identified by their place of birth. For example, Charles V was known in his youth after his birthplace as Charles the Get, G-H-E-N-T. When he became king of Spain, he was known as Charles of Spain. And after he was elected emperor as Charles IV, in Spain, the dynasty was known as Casa de Austria, and that included illegitimate sons such as John of Austria and John Joseph of Austria. The arms displayed in their simplest form were those of Austria, which the Habsburgs have made their own, and sometimes have impaled with the arms of the Duchy of Burgundy. So, yeah, I think that those flags look exactly the same to me. Um, so, Habsburgs is associated with ancestral Austrian rulership, was often used to show that the old dynasty continued as did all its inherited rights. When Francis I became Emperor of Austria, he adopted the old shield of Habsburg in his personal arms, together with Austria and Lorraine. This also reinforced the Germanus of the French-speaking Austrian emperor and his claim to rule in Germany, not the least against the Prussian kings. Some younger sons who had no prospects of the throne were given the personal title of Count of Habsburg. Count Dracula? <laughs> so, yeah, um... The surname of more recent members of the family, such as Otto van Habsburg and Karl van Habsburg, is taken to be von Habsburg, or more completely, von Habsburg Lothengrin. Princes and members of the house use the tripart arms adopted in the 18th century by Francis Stephen. So, the house of Habsburg may have been Guntram the Rich, a count in some other place from the 10th century that I don't even sort of understand. The castle was the family seat during the 12th, 13th centuries. So then we get kind of squishy on these castles, and I'll get back to this in more detail, but um, the name Hasburg was not added to the noble title until Rabdot's grandson, Otto II, added von Hasburg to his title thus beginning the House of Habsburg. So that would have been, um, I don't know, Habsburg Castle importance. Oh, the Habsburg Castle's importance diminished after Radoff's seventh generation. They moved the family base to Austria, supposedly in 1276. So, yeah, I think that um, they lost the canton of, uh, to the Swiss Confederacy. Yeah, those Swiss are in there, too. Um the original coats of arms to fly over Habsburg Castle, a red lion on a golden field, remained part of the Austrian arms up to the end of the imperial period. So, the modern arms of the municipality of Habsburg, Switzerland, depict Habsburg Castle. The area surrounding the castle was surrounded by forests and cleared in 1500s. They always have to find these things. They said it was first constructed. See, all these buildings 
always have add-on features, right? Well, that it was reinforced, that it was a reinforced building, or that it was first found at this date. Today, the large and small towers, today the large and small towers of the original castle are preserved, attached to a residential building of the 13th century, with while large parts of the complex lie in ruins. Oh, what a surprise, right? What a surprise. The extent of its eastern parts is recognizable only by foundation walls. <laughs> they put up basically brick walls around places to get people to pay to go visit them. So yeah, I'll get back to that later, but the, the Habsburgs are pretty um, interesting here to me at least. And um, the Habsburgs moved to Rome. Um, and I'm following this trail of these Romans quite quite studiously right now. So um, they uh, they started mingling, and they uh, all these people from thousands of years. I'm not going to drag through all that. I'm going to get to the part that makes sense here. Okay, <laughs> the Austro-Hungarian Compromise of 1867 created a real union whereby the Kingdom of Hungary was granted co-equality with the Emperor Empire of Austria that henceforth didn't include the Kingdom of Hungary as a crown land anymore. The Austrian and the Hungarian lands became independent entities enjoying equal status. See, isn't that funny? 1867, right? They kind of come to their senses and start talking about what they're really up to. Under this arrangement, the Hungarians referred to their ruler as king and never emperor. This prevailed until the Habsburgs deposition from excuse me, the Habsburgs deposition from both Austria and Hungary in 1918 followed defeat in World War One. So yeah, um, there's something there with these Habsburgs, this Hungary, this Romania area, um, and they said that uh, the government passed a law that revoked Charles' rights and dethroned the Habsburgs. The Habsburgs did not formally abandon all hope of returning to power until Otto van Habsburg, the eldest son of Charles, on May 31, 1961, renounced all claims. So, in the interwar period, the House of Habsburg was a vehement opponent of National Socialism and Communism. So yeah, um, in Adolf Hitler supposedly diametrically opposed the century-old Habsburg principles of largely allowing local communities under their rule to maintain traditional ethic, religious, and language practices. And Hitler bristled with hatred against the Habsburg family all the more reason to take a closer look, right? During the Second World War, there was a strong Habsburg resistance movement in Central Europe, which was radically persecuted by the Germans, Nazis, and the Gestapo. The unofficial leader of these groups was Otto van Habsburg, who campaigned against the Nazis for a free Central Europe in France, and also in the United States. Most of the resistance fighters, such as Heinrich Meyer, who successfully passed on production sites and plans for V-2 rockets, 
tiger tanks, and aircraft to the Allies were executed. The Habsburg family played a leading role in the fall of the Iron Curtain and the collapse of the Communist Eastern Bloc. After they accumulated crowns and titles, the Habsburgs developed a unique family tradition and multilingualism that evolved over the centuries. The Holy Roman, as in Romani's empire, had been multilingual from the start, even though most of its emperors were native German speakers. The language issue within the empire became gradually more salient as the non-religious use of Latin declined and which he was, let me see, I, I spun up too fast here. Okay. Okay. Yeah, this is pretty key. I don't want to skip back here. <laughs> um. Oh yeah. Okay. I'm sorry, I, I, I flipped past the page here. Okay, this is how they got German language. It's pretty critical, right? All of a sudden, these Habsburgs are studying German. <laughs> the last section of his Golden Bull of 1356 specifies that the empire's secular prince electors should be instructed at in the varieties of the different dialects and languages and that since they are expected in all likelihood to have naturally acquired the German language and have been taught and to have been taught it from their infancy. And they shall be instructed in the grammar of the Italian and Slavic tongues. See why, why are they worried about speaking Italian, huh? Okay, so this gets really crazy here, but they do, um, they added some Castilian Spanish. That explains why there's two kinds of Spanish. Um, Latin was the administrative language of the empire until the aggressive promotion of German by Joseph II in the late 18th century, which was partly reversed by his successors. So this guy, <clears throat> this guy Joseph II in the 18th century was pushing speaking German. Okay, um, France... Franz Joseph received a bilingual early education in French and German, then added Czech and Hungarian, and later Italian. So, yeah, I think there's something here. Um, the um, Holy Roly, Holy Roly, <laughs> Holy Roman Emperors, they were intimately from 1273 until 1806. And they were primarily Roman German kings. So, yeah, there's something here. These people are up to something there, aren't they? They're using the same mad, same map. They're using that same little design as they're doing this Tartaria stuff. When they're, when they're doing these little things online with these little CIA agents like this Tartaria, there is something there. It just is never exactly what you think is on the surface, right? That's where the rabbit hole becomes divided into a whole bunch of different rabbit holes. And unfortunately, most people fly down the big rabbit hole and never notice that there's a million other rabbit holes to experiment. So the Habsburgs were before the Ottoman Empire. Now remember, I'm just figuring this out, okay? The Ottoman Empire caught my attention because all these maps of Tartaria have the Ottoman Empire on there too. 
Well, the Ottoman Empire is actually Turkey, right? So the question was that I had was, does the Ottoman Empire still exist today? Because it's a little bit fishy. You can't really just look at maps. You have to start looking at other things, right? They claim that the Ottoman Empire ended in 1922 when the title of Ottoman Sultan was eliminated. Turkey was declared a republic on October 29, 1923. So they founded the Independent Republic of Turkey in 1923. So it's a little bit fuzzy because that's really about the era that they're constantly rewriting stuff as Ottoman stuff. They say that it was an imperial power that existed between 1299 and 1923 for 634 years. It was one of the largest empires to rule the borders of the Mediterranean Sea. During its power, it included Antolia, the Middle East, part of North Africa, and Southeastern Europe. So what caused it to rise? Well, According to what they say, the desire of the Ghazi Turks to expand their territory under Osman I early in the 14th century led to the rise of the Ottoman Empire. These Islamic raiders attracted hordes of nomadic people to bolster their army and successfully assaulted the decaying defenses of the Byzantine Empire. So, how they get their name? So, the name that he established is known to us as Turkey, but is also known as the founder as the Ottoman Empire and its citizens call themselves Omalis. So yeah, I don't know. They, they say that the uh, Roman Empire developed all these things. It, the Roman Empire was basically as many miles as the Ottoman Empire. Funny how that works. Maybe the Ottoman Empire, we'll find out, might be Turkey, right? Well, we know it's Turkey, but it could be blended into this other area. Um, so why was I looking at Ottoman? Well, because <laughs> because a lot of reasons. Uh, because I ran across this. I was looking for asylums in other places, and I found a um, deal that they started with insane asylums in the Ottoman state. The Ottoman state was for the insane was 1856 to 1908. So there was a study that said, the present study seeks to contribute to and expand our knowledge concerning the nature and scope of the Tanzimi reforms by bringing to our scholarly attention a relatively understood matter, the mental asylum reform that took place between 18. 56 and 1908. So this thing started with some guy named Luigi, and I don't know that hey, this is important right this second, but all I'm saying is that um, the Ottoman asylum, that they have something there with all these nut words, these Ottoman people. And from a quote I found, it said the institutionalization of medical practice marks a noteworthy chapter in the modernization of the Ottoman Empire as madmen starting to be perceived as treatable patients. This dissertation is mainly concerned with an overarching question, 
what happened since the old ways of dealing with the insane started to dissolve in the Ottoman Empire. So they managed, it shaped and affected by this change a hundred of years. Nonetheless, if the Ottoman modernization sheds light on the modernization of mental institutions. So yeah, I don't know how these Ottoman people fit into all this right now. It's it's pretty fuzzy in my head right now, but somehow this is going to connect. <laughs> and, and all roads seem to lead to Romanese, right? Romanese? Romanese? Romans? I think there's something there. So anyway, be safe out there. Goodbye for now. Gee, I got to call my family. Oh, this is so embarrassing calling him from a nut house. I mean, they think I'm a god. I could call him for you. Oh, great. And uh, try to put a good face on this. Tell him this is one of those places where rich women lose weight. Joe's crematorium. You kill him, we grill him. Hello? Who is this? I'm Bart Simpson. Who the hell are you? I'm Michael Jackson. The Michael Jackson? Pfft, no way. It's true. I'm with your father in a mental institution. Uh-huh. And is Elvis with you? He could be. It's a big hospital. Oh, come on. If you're really Michael Jackson, who are your last four dates for the Grammys? Brooke Shields, Diana Ross, Manuel Lewis, and Bubbles. Shiver me timbers, you are Michael Jackson! Can you stay on the line while I get all my friends and relatives? I'm afraid not, Bart. Your father really needs your help. You don't want him to get a lobotomy, do you? Hmm. Lobotomy. Ah! That's all right, son. Well, there's probably a downside I don't see. Uh-huh. New Bedlam Asylum. Mm. Loves us. Needs us. Fears he may never see us again. Got it. Michael Jackson, woo-hoo! I love you, man. Hey, Mom. Dad's in a mental institution. Oh, my God. Mother was right. <laughs> now, Homer, don't you worry. Your family's gonna be here before you know it. Forget it, pal. There's only one way out of here, and it ain't pretty. What's that? Dating a nurse. Oh.